Welcome to the 25th podcast in our Genesis 12 through 36 sermon series. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley is continuing our series with a sermon called Wrestling with God Part 2. We are diving back into Genesis around chapter 33 this morning. Uh, Mitch, as he prayed, mentioned some of the things that we talked about with Jacob last week. Last week was kind of a dark time, a, a dark night of the soul, so to speak. Maybe you've heard that term before. A lot of us, maybe all of us, have had a time wrestling with problems, maybe wrestling with spiritual things, wrestling with God. What is God up to? We, I think we've all had times where things feel dark and the questions uh, are tough and the answers aren't found and everything starts to, you know, uh, wrap in and close in around you, right? I think Jacob, that's where he was in his dark night of the soul. It was dark. That stranger shows up. They wrestle. So, and, and Jacob prevails, even though he goes away limping from this interaction from this stranger. He is the prevailer. And how in the world does that happen? How does that make any sense? Well, as Jacob says in chapter 32, verse 30, Jacob says he's seen God and he's been delivered. In that moment, in that dark part in his life, he has, been, he has come face to face with God and his plan and his purpose, and he hasn't given up hope, and he hasn't, letting, hasn't let go, and in a sense, he has prevailed even though he limps and goes away with a limp. So, uh, how do you have hope? This is kind of how we ended it this past week. To don't give in, similar to what Jacob did. He didn't give in uh, in prayer. Keep believing in Christ, that Christ will give you, as you keep praying, Christ will give you what it is that you actually need. Okay? And we stressed that last week. may not be what you're praying for at the time, but he will give you what you need. And secondly, don't let go. Don't go let go of what? Uh, don't let go of his promises. His promises are good. He is faithful and true. He will deliver on that. Now, we don't know the timing. We don't know exactly how that's going to happen. But regardless, in the wrestling match of life, we keep holding on to Jesus because he will deliver and it is worth the effort and the struggle and the wrestling and all of that. So that's how we left off last week. And now this week we move into Wrestling God Part 2. That's the title of the series. And we begin with this simple summary. To accept the grace of God means your wrestling match with God is over. Similar to Jacob, his match was over. You too, you and I both, okay? So this is kind of the big umbrella idea that we're beginning with, and we're going to see how that makes sense. This is an Old Testament preview of grace. Scripture is filled, it is saturated with examples and storylines uh, giving us 
a foretaste of Jesus coming, and then when Jesus comes, how that changes everything. And one of the biggest themes in Scripture, all the way through Scripture, is grace. I love it. So I love uh, this sermon this morning in a way that's different than other messages and where they usually go. So I hope you stuck with us this past week through that dark night of wrestling and wondering what's going to happen next because this morning is the payoff, all right? Are you with me so far? I hope you're just a little bit excited. This morning is the payoff of all of that wondering, all of that darkness, all the questioning, what's going to happen with Jacob's life, what's going to happen with our lives. This morning, we have the payoff. So as you don't give in to any other confusion or any other message in prayer and seeking God, and as, and as you don't give up, in other words, you, as you don't let go, you begin to realize that it was Jesus not giving in on you, and it's Jesus not letting go of you the whole time. That is grace as we begin to understand where Scripture is leading us and the story of God and His redemptive purposes for people like us. And, and uh, Jacob and his interaction with Esau gives us this beautiful snapshot of this powerful, this powerful picture of grace and what grace truly is. So, Let's get the uh, context here. I believe what I have on the screen. There we go. That's not on, so I'm going to look up here. Genesis 33, verses 1 through 3, sets us up from where we were last week. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel, that is Jacob, and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So remember, this is where we left off last week. Jacob and Esau, they haven't seen each other for decades. The last time we had any clue of what Esau was doing, he was filled with rage and animosity. He wanted to kill his brother. Okay? And all that Jacob knows is he's still out hot to kill him. Uh, and he is about to confront this murderous, his brother bent on murder, and he lifts up his eyes so that at the end of the previous chapter we saw the sun was rising. Okay, A, a wonderful little narrative idea and tool. Uh, the sun is coming up, so as the sun rises, he's beginning to see and he sees his brother, and not just his brother, but 400 guys ready to fight. For all he knows, he is bringing an army with an arsenal with him. So he sends out, he plans out how he's going to approach him. He sends, you see in the, in the text, he sends his family first in different waves. And then he comes, Jacob comes later, bowing as he goes seven times. This idea of perfection is throughout Scripture. Original Testament, New Testament. Uh, if there's anything he's going to do, he's going to do it perfectly, especially at this point where his neck is on the line. And he bows and continues to bow as he comes before his brother. And then the story changes. And what do we see? We see for the first time in, I mean, all this stuff, all this dysfunction with Jacob, 
that we've seen, that we've encountered so far. And then finally, as the sun rises, we see something completely, entirely different. We see grace, this beautiful and powerful interaction gives us amazing picture of grace. So here's what it looks like. Number one, it looks like a broken and humbled spirit. All right, so we just left off. He sun's up. He sees Esau and these 400 guys. He bows to the ground seven times. And verse 4 says, But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Just allow yourself to get into the story for just a moment. Real stuff, real people. Jacob thought he was dead. He had no idea how brutal and bloody it's going to be. And the extreme opposite happens. Esau comes running to him. This but Esau, that's exactly what the text says, the, the, the radical turn, the beginning of verse 4, but Esau moment in Jacob's life, just as the sun's coming up and his eyes begin to clearly see, shines this new light of grace into his life, into his family, and into the, the broken, uh, built on distrust and, and uh, deceiving and manipulation relationship that he has always had the only relationship he's ever known of with his brother, and now grace. The burden that Jacob brings, think about this. He's in his 90s at this point. Everything that he's carried with him his whole life, this goes all the way back to childhood, this interaction with Esau, and how he cheated him out of the birthright. And all these other things going on with Laban and the deception that he's uh, done and, and the manipulation that's been uh, directed at him, all of this compounded garbage in his life piled up. He's been dragging it around all over Palestine. And here in this moment, the burden drops because he's been given what he in no way, in any way, could possibly deserve or earn or have some credit to cash in on. He gets pure, beautiful grace from a brother that he thought was out to kill him, and instead he comes to him, runs to him, hugs him. They fall to the ground, and they weep together, and they kiss each other, and you see this love, saturated grace begin to pour out where there's only been fear and stress and judgment and trouble, there is now joy. Have you had a moment like that, anything to compare to in your life, where a relationship estranged, broken, whatever reason, whatever's gone on, maybe a family member, and in a moment, all of that melts away? I mean, pure grace does that, right? Love that comes through grace all of that garbage, and have that moment where none of it matters anymore because we're together. And you know forgiveness is there. And it just opens up a whole new life, a new page, a new light shines. That's the beauty of this verse, even those first two words. Jacob is humbled, literally, 
to the ground as he's been as he's been bowing in his own effort and now to the ground with his brother the brokenness that comes from the release of all that junk and now experiencing grace maybe even for the first time in his life it goes on what else does it look like number 2 what does grace at work look like your efforts added up to nothing the realization that all of the efforts that Jacob had in his life, it all adds up to nothing. Backtrack a little bit here. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 33. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times. It is this orchestrated attempt to earn grace. And even before that, back to chapter 32, starting at verse 13, we looked at that this, this past week. Uh, he stayed the night, and then he set up this uh, way, this, this scheme uh, to have his family and his belongings go wave after wave before him to try to persuade Esau and his family, right? Uh, all of these gifts, all these animals, the sheep and the donkeys and the goats and the camels, all of these animals, here's a wave. Oh, and here's another wave. Oh, if you didn't like that one, here's another wave. Gifts and people and servants. Certainly somebody in ancient times, like his brother, would be uh, impressed by all of these gifts and this extravagant show that leads all the way in to the beginning of chapter 33. Look at all the presents. All these things to impress. Please don't kill me. Please don't judge me. Don't end my life. Don't hurt us, okay? All of this goes before him. Uh, and you know what? All of that added up wouldn't have been enough anyway because if Esau wanted to kill him, he had 400 guys, right? I mean, if that was the intent, he would have wiped them all out easily with 400 guys. Jacob did not have anything to match that. A lot of scholars look at this chapter and wonder, ask a question, why was Esau going around the 400 guys anyway, right? And I wondered the same thing. What was Esau's intention with these 400? I mean, that's a huge, may, may, may not sound like massive military strength today, but then in this situation, that was a huge uh, uh, show of potential strength. Don't mess with us, right? You see 400 guys even today coming at you, you would begin to wonder what's going on. So scholars ask the question, I ask the question, What's the point of the 400 guys? The text doesn't tell us. Now, remember the last few weeks, I keep bringing up the fact that similar to parables, there are some things in the narrative that are just left open, okay? That uh, I think intentionally. Because the author can't write everything, can't tell us every possible thing that happened, gives us the, the necessary stuff in the story to lead us towards this point. So there's 400 guys, but he doesn't tell us what Esau was thinking, so we don't know exactly, but this possibility that as he comes after all those waves, after all this posturing, right, to impress, to save his life, and you look, you get, you put your eyes, because he already knew about the 400 guys, but not until you see with your eyes and you hear the rustle and the sounds of these guys coming forward, not until that moment do you realize none of that mattered anyway, right? I think that's, we don't know their intent, 
But for us, this speaks. This, this speaks forever. This speaks through the ages, right? Because you come to that moment, oh, I'm dead anyway. <laughs> and that had to go through his mind right up to that moment before Esau runs and kisses him and, and grace begins to pour out. All of it added up to nothing. Number three, you've encountered God. So back to chapter 33, uh, they had this emotional, uh, grace-filled reunion in chapter 4, uh, or excuse me, verse 4, verse 5, Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children. He said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant, then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down, this ongoing uh, show of respect. They even call themselves servants, okay? That's not like they're literally actually their servants, but their desire to be humble in that moment is certainly appropriate to the circumstance. So that's, that's why this is uh, unfolding the way it is. And Esau said, what did you mean by all this company that I met? Verse 8. And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord, but Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Verse 10, Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Okay, what in the world? Why would he say that? Does he, you know, why would he think that? I've looked at your face. It's like I've seen the face of God. Sounds weird, right? Well, not so weird when you consider the context. Peniel is the name of the place uh, that was used as previous chapter. Remember that? Uh, so Jacob named that place because uh, that word means seeing the face of God. So the wrestling match is over. His hip is wounded. Yet he goes away thinking, I've survived God. I have seen the face of God. And that moment. That's the watershed moment. That's the watershed grace moment in his life because everything else looks different or at least begins to look different from that point forward. So as he interacts with his brother and he's already received grace, uh, why, why would he look at his brother? Because the lingering memory of what he's received is now projected on others. I see God in you because you extended grace to me, which is huge for what is happening and is what is, uh, what is also about to happen in their discussion. So not because he brought anything to the table, not because Jacob earned any special love or response from Esau, simply because Esau did that, then Jacob begins to respond, oh, I get it. I get it now. Because of what has happened with me and God, I also see grace. And in the same sense, I see God coming through you and the way that you treated me and what's now happening in my life. I know what it's like now because of what God has done. And now I can see it in your face. He's had an encounter. Jacob's had an encounter with God that has changed his life changes how he sees people, and now how he's beginning to respond to them. So
So one more here. What grace at work looks like, it also looks like a growing desire to bless or grace others. So I'll use those two words interchangeably now, bless and grace, because they really are becoming kind of the same thing in what we see uh, continuing to happen. So where do we leave off? I read through verse 10. I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, been there, I'm continuing to go there in that understanding, my new understanding of grace. And you've accepted me. That's grace, okay? So verse 11, uh, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he, Esau, he finally uh, takes it. So all these gifts that Jacob brought because he felt like he had to to save his life. Now he's had this grace awakening in his life, and he encourages his brother to go ahead and still take the gift, because now what is different? He knows he couldn't save his life. His life has been saved because of grace, and now he says, take it anyway. Take this gift. My response to the grace I've received, this gift, I love you, I, 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 I appreciate you, I'm glad I'm not dead, I want you to have this, because the gift now comes from a different kind of giver. Do you see that? His life has been transformed by grace, and now he wants to grace his brother. Now, there's a very interesting thing in the language that's going on here that we wouldn't pick up otherwise unless we bring it out here. The same language, the same wording is used in uh, this idea of of giving a blessing here, okay, in verse 11, uh, where he says, accept my blessing. If we go all the way back to chapter 27, verse 36, when Esau's ticked because he knows he's, he's been cheated out of his blessing, Esau says, he, meaning Jacob, has taken away my blessing. Now, Jacob, Jacob never heard that interaction, okay? That was a discussion between Esau and others. Jacob never heard it. He's somewhere uh, hearing about what happened, you know, secondhand and running for his life, okay? But Esau said, he took my blessing. And it's so interesting that now, decades later, when they're reunited, Jacob doesn't have to give his blessing, or give a blessing. He doesn't have to. No one's telling him. He doesn't have mom and dad around the corner. You need to give this back, right? But in the moment, he sees an opportunity to give a blessing, and he says, please, verse 11, please accept my blessing. So in a sense, what he stole, he now gives back. Man, when I first, when that first sunk in, when I was studying this, Oh, holy cow. I mean, how many of us parents try to set up kids or maybe teachers or maybe, uh, I don't know, cousins, aunts and uncles kind of get into this. You try to teach kids a lesson by forcing them to give something back, right? I did it. I tried to do it with my kids. And what do you actually teach most of the time? Tell me. Yeah, yeah, it's a power play. Yep, there's force involved, right? Do you, do you, do you teach grace or, or gratitude or love or anything? 
It makes everybody angrier, right? Kids, adults, everybody that interchange, you give it back. I'm not going to give it back. You give it back because that's the right thing to do. And you give it in a nice way, right? Or else, right? Yeah, yeah that's, that's going to work, right? So we do crazy stuff like that because you see what's wrong and you want to make it right. The problem is maybe part of it we can set right, but we can't make the heart right. You just can't. Oh, we long to. We wish we could. By imposing our will, it doesn't happen. If somebody had told Jacob, you got to get that blessing back, or else, what, you know, at any point in his life, it's not going to work. Now he just freely gives it because his heart's changed. He's had an encounter with God and he sees all that he has and all this stuff he really doesn't need and the grace that's been given to him. Please take it. I don't need it. I want you to have it. I want you to be graciously blessed in this encounter because of what you've given, because I love you, because this is a different world that I see now that my eyes are opened up to. You can't force that stuff, can you? It's the grace of God at work. He sees an opportunity and he just wants to give. What Jacob cheated to get, he now freely gives. Now, Scripture is filled, like I said earlier, filled with stories about grace from different angles, different people, different dimensions, you know, different, part, different stories, really. Uh, and original Testament is filled with them in order to get our attention as we read Scripture to inform us, to, to get into our hearts, right? Because none of us accept grace easily, nor do we give it willingly. That is not part of the way we're wired under sin. So we have all these stories to interact with to begin thinking about, well, what if? Could it be true? What if I, I mean, if I'm honest, I don't deserve any of this? What if I had a Jacob Esau moment and somebody uh, that I've been estranged from for years actually did that? I mean, to, to be drawn into the story is a powerful thing. And it begins to chip away at our, our, our preconceived ideas of love and acceptance and forgiveness and, and receiving and giving grace. So the beauty of Scripture, as we read it, as we understand the whole of it, it all wraps around and points towards and opens our eyes, not just to Jacob and Esau, but to Jesus to who he is, the character of God, what God lays before us, and how God works to eventually soften our hearts so we can begin not to just understand the technical details, but to be changed, to have this warm up, and we begin to realize, whoa, there's something else going on, and it's got to affect me first. So, Let's kind of bring this home here. Grace received by faith in Christ. So these, I'm going to give you three points here as we wrap up. They're, they're parallel, they're similar to what we saw with Jacob and Esau, but they are fulfilled, so to speak, in what Jesus does and what the New Testament tells us about what Jesus did uh, in order to extend grace to us so we can finally get it, okay? So the first one, grace received by faith in Christ results in knowing God, knowing more about God. Who is God really? 
not the confusing, distorted stuff we hear in our culture, and not even the stuff that we make up because we project ourselves on God. Well, God must be like this because that's what I understand, right? And we do that all the time. People do that all the time. But grace gives us who God really is. And then we get to pull that in. What? That's not what I expected. That's not what I thought. Right? (laughs) Uh, Tell me, I mean, I've done this with other people, the people that I've met. uh, I've asked people, you know, tell me about who God is. What do you think God is? What do you think God does? And many times the stuff I hear, I can readily say, whoa, if God's like that, I wouldn't accept that either. Or I wouldn't love, or I wouldn't respond well to that either. Because what you've described to me, maybe that's where you're at and what, that's what you thought, but that's not what the Bible says. That's not what I know about God and what he's told me about himself. There's a lot of goofy ideas, uh, distorted ideas about who God is. So the but Esau, that parallels with what Paul says when he encountered the grace of God in Ephesians chapter 2. So we had but Esau, we just looked at that, and now we look at but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no, so that no one may boast. Three times in that short passage, Paul mentions grace. So this is a whole other sermon, so we're not going to give you a sermon, you know, times two or whatever. But just, just for a moment, look at those verses. Just those four or five verses. Three times he says grace. What does each time he says grace say about God? Just look at that. Just for a moment, okay? In your own mind. Get the wheels turning, okay? Each time he says grace, what is that saying about God? Personal, okay? What else? Just off the top of your head. Salvation. And it's by grace. What else? Love? Yep. What else? Kind? It's in Christ, not just in anything else. It's a gift. God gives gifts like that. There is an immeasurable uh, character about uh, the richness of his grace. You cannot fathom it. You cannot extend a measuring tape and understand where it begins and where it ends. You cannot do it. Everybody's tried to find, well, there must be a point where he stops extending grace. No. No one comes before God and says, I have been so bad or so wrecked, so hurt, uh, so sinful that that, that his grace is beyond me. Uh Uh-uh. Immeasurable. 
the richness, the vastness, the wonder of it, the beauty of it. That's what Paul has experienced. I'll bet you that there are a whole lot of people in your lives right now who have never thought of God like that. I'll bet you money. We'll go to the casino together and I will win with your money. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't bet. But anyway, I'm serious. We need our knowledge of God as believers. We need to extend that to other people. Have you ever thought about God like that? And I will bet you most of the folks we talk with have no clue of that God, the richness of his grace and how unending it is. Try it. I dare you. Go there with somebody to extend the idea of God, be a God not of judgment and anger and cruelty, but one of pure, unending grace. Give it a shot. Number two, grace received by faith in Christ results in a brand new perspective, okay? All your awards, achievements, the skills, Awana bucks, whatever you've got, you know, in the corner somewhere, it's nothing. All of our skills, our ambitions, uh, how religiously wonderful we think we may be, it's all garbage. Now, here's how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 3. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. No one compares to me, Paul says. Just try it. I've got you beat. But whatever gain I had, Paul says, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Just a word about rubbish, okay? We lose track. We don't have an idea because translators sanitize that word. This, it's the street-level word for poop. Okay? If I used it, I might lose my job. But translators shy away from that word because you can't put that word in the Bible, right? And maybe there's a good reason for that. Sort of distracting. But if there's any word that captures the essence of what Paul is trying to communicate, even the Greek word, skubalon, look it up. It, uh, that, I'm not making this up. I was just on the farm this past weekend, the old family farm. I was in one of the old pig barns. Okay, looking at some scrap lumber uh, that's still in the barn. And I was recalling those glorious days of my youth when I, with my large squeegee and shovel, would have to go through where the pigs hang out, sleep, live, whatever, their weird existence. And pigs aren't that dirty. Pigs get a bad rap, right? Because where they sleep, they like to keep it clean, like us, okay? Uh, the problem is they don't do such a great job with that. So you have to go in there and especially in the winter, clean out the old hay and all the poo that gets worked in with their dirty bodies in that hay and 
My job was to push that stuff out the door so eventually it could be scooped up with a front loader and spread on the, on the field with the, the honey wagon, as dad called it, okay? So you use everything, right? I was remembering that, oh, those glorious days. This is why I didn't seek agriculture, okay? Or, or any kind of working with animals, because it was nasty. It was gross, okay? And I was thinking about this sermon. Paul, if he had ever worked with pigs, which he certainly wouldn't have, but if he had had any kind of nasty job working with that, then he would add a great illustration to the people that he wrote to in Philippi. Because it, that's everything I thought was so great is that pile of steaming you-know-what compared to Jesus. The contrast cannot be greater. Do you know that kind of grace in your life? when you look at everything pre-Jesus and say it's absolute steaming garbage compared to knowing Christ and his grace in my life and being forgiven and being set free and having his purpose and his plan and his glory attached to me. And I know that no matter what I do, it just keeps getting better because of his grace. In just a couple minutes, we're going to sing Amazing Grace. And John Newton uh, wrote seven or more verses. I don't know how many original verses there are to Amazing Grace. But as we sing it, you'll notice that it, one of the choruses speaks of the grace that has brought me safe thus far, and that same grace leads me home. It doesn't end. So if you've been in, a, in, a, in this mode where uh, I became a Christian at one point, and now I received God's grace and his love, and it wasn't that great, and now, oh, it, it just keeps getting better. So the more you live in his grace, the more you see anything else in comparison as that pile. Jesus is more and more and more of everything in my heart and in my life. So let's wrap this up here. I really like this. Can you tell? I really like this message. Grace received by faith in Christ results in, here's something you probably didn't expect when it comes to grace. It results in going to school. Oh, everything was so happy, and then I mentioned going to school. So here is what Titus tells us. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That idea of the grace of God training us. Paiduo is the Greek word. Uh, Paideia Academy, everybody, everybody remember that? I don't, they're gone now, right? They closed? Yeah, Paideia Academy. Uh, the, the same idea, except Paideia is a noun. Uh, Paideo is the verb form, okay? So, but in that name, that name meant teaching training academy. That was the Greek um, basis for that title, and here we have the idea of grace being a training school. So it's at one point in your life, if you're a believer, you realize and appreciate it and experience the grace of God. Amazing, heartwarming, life-changing experience. When Jesus comes in, regenerating us, turning us on by filling us with the Holy Spirit. But it, that's only the beginning. So uh, in this letter to Titus, 
the beginning goes on because grace is still at work, opening our eyes to, to understand and realize, yep, that part of my life was ungodly, and I, I don't need it, and I really shouldn't want it, and I should get used to habitually rejecting it. And at the same time, godliness, being turned on to what pleases the Lord and living in that. So each day as a believer in grace is a training school, responding to him at work in us. And then what do we do as we are in training to extend his grace to others? Now, this last point is kind of where some of us trail off or maybe get confused or because of the American evangelical experience decide, well, that's not really important anyway because I have my salvation insurance and I said my prayer and so that doesn't really matter. This does matter to our lives right now. So let me try to explain what I'm saying by that and, and fill this in. So I have a picture here that's probably not going to look real good. Yeah, it started off really bad. It's a poor picture, original, sorry about that. The gal who is on the left side, her name is Charlotte Marshall. She's a staff sergeant in the Air National Guard. She was deployed to Qatar a number of months ago. I don't know what her original uh, reason for deployment was. She didn't tell me. She probably had to kill me if she told me, so I'm like, great, I don't want to know. Uh, but I've had you know, a few messages from her back and forth over the last few months, and her... Um, reason for deployment changed radically back in August. The mission shifted from whatever it was to taking care of refugees that are coming out of Afghanistan rapid fire. And everybody knows the story in the news, right? All of a sudden, plane after plane filled with hundreds of people had to go somewhere. So at least some of those refugees went towards Charlotte and, uh, and her group there, their National Guard group there in Qatar. So in that picture, that really bad picture, you see three Afghan girls that she's sitting with for the picture. And you see also behind her a number of people, Afghani people standing in line. So the processing took place there for a few days until they were shipped off to wherever else in the world they went, a number of them heading to the United States. So I, I messaged her back and forth about this experience. And boy, was it eye-opening. Because <laughs> some people... you. In the beginning of the experience, I think Charlotte would agree. Maybe I'll have her come speak because she's due to come back to the state soon. Uh, some of the people that she interacted with, you want to have compassion on right away. I mean, kids, for crying out loud, who are displaced, who never go home again, may not even have family members with them. I mean, your heart aches for humanity in that situation, right? I mean, if it doesn't, you're, you're, you need help. So she's responding. You know, they're coloring pictures together and waiting for the processing and for uh, the officials to figure out what are we going to do with these children. And then you've got other people, maybe some of the people standing in line behind her, that weren't so nice. And you'd think, and maybe you expect in this situation, your life has just been saved, you ought to be grateful. But here's the problem. When, no matter what refugee you are, or language, or culture you speak, or you're part of, uh, you bring your issues with you. They don't get dropped on the tarmac at the airport. So if you've been a pretty cruddy person who deceives people, who steals from people, takes advantage of people in the past, you get on a plane, you just get to do that wherever you're going to next. 
You follow me? So Charlotte was telling me about some of those people she interacted with. So she went with compassion in her heart to, wait a second, there's a lot of garbage people here. She didn't say that, but you get the idea, right? There's a lot of people here who really don't deserve to have a second shot. So why are they getting it? So then the wrestling match begins with who deserves grace and who doesn't? Who should get a second chance? And who, you know what, you should have stayed in Afghanistan because nobody wants your stuff here or anywhere else, right? So it gets tough in that situation. So I, I tell you that not to get into this discussion about American policy and, and shipping refugees all over the country, and we're not talking about that, okay? It's just what struck me in the conversation I had with Charlotte was, is so much like us as believers, because you would like to think that as we get to extend grace, it's always received well, and it's received by people who clean up nice, who smell nice and appreciate it, and are kind of like me, so I get along with you easily and readily, but that rarely happens. When you extend grace, it's a whole lot like God extending grace to you. And that's the part we don't like to grasp or admit, that there are a whole lot of people around us that if I had to judge you right now, of course we don't judge, but if I were to judge, I would not deem you worthy of grace or compassion or forgiveness or friendliness even. Yet it's before us this opportunity with the mass of humanity that we interact with every day, the opportunity of extending Grace, which scholars, at least some scholars, define grace as unmerited favor. There are a whole lot of people, just like us, that don't deserve it, the favor that we could extend. Yet God puts them into our lives. Here's somebody who could be changed if you extend grace to them. You see, we're all in the school of grace whether we realize it or not. Have we advanced? Have we learned anything? Well, here's the deal. Uh, We'll kind of wrap this up here. You are far more likely to extend it if you experience it in an ongoing way in the first place. Like Jacob and Esau, like so many other examples. Transforming Grace, another book you should read, Jerry Bridges. Uh, I haven't finished it yet. So many, he's such a good, he's a scholar, but he's such a good communicator. He, uh, he has this in his, in his book, Common View of the Christian Life. Well, yes, we've been justified by grace. Yep, I understand that, and I'll readily accept that. I've been ra- made right with God, justified to have a relationship with God. And at the end, uh, someday when this life is over, we sing about this a lot, I'll be glorified, but be made like Jesus. I'll be perfected, no more sin, by his grace. It's the middle part that we continue to struggle with. We, have, we all have this uh, innate sense or desire or, or bent on legalism. Because there's still, I'll accept the other two, but there's still something else that I've got to contribute or I've got to be in control of. And grace runs smack into that. The two cannot coexist. So Bridges 
makes this point. What the New Testament tells us, all those verses that we read at the beginning of this service, and I'll give you one more. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Excuse me, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Jesus forgave us all our trespasses. Not Everybody reads that in past tense. Oh, he, and when I came to Christ at that moment, everything prior to that, he forgave. But the rest of it, I'm kind of in charge of still. And what Paul is telling the Colossians, Jesus, when he forgives, is not limited by our sense of linear time. Not. Jesus forgives past, present, and future. We've got to learn that in our training school of grace. So this is what the New Testament presents to us. We've been justified. Yep, it's because of the grace of God. Someday glorification. Yep, that is a gift. But in the meantime, all, every minute that God gives me breath is based on his grace alone. Absolutely, period, at the end of that. Maybe exclamation point. It is all about his grace. So we like to think of coming to Christ. We were in debt, and then God, and then Jesus paid the debt, canceled the debt. Colossians speaks in those terms of debt and finance, whatever. But the reality is he canceled all of our debt into the future, and we can't go back into debt ever. Did you catch that? If we're going to extend that metaphor of debt, you can't, because his grace is so sufficient, and so comprehensive, life by grace in Jesus means you never go back into debt. That's a training school. And when you grasp, you begin to grasp that, you look at other people who don't deserve grace, and you begin to say, I can't lose. No matter what happens in my life, it's all good. I am covered by his grace no matter what. So yeah, I don't like you, and you do creepy stuff, and maybe you deserve a prison sentence, but maybe you have one already, but I'm still going to extend grace to you because that's what Jesus did to me. And I'm going to give it to you. The blessing of grace is extended. Are you there? We got to go to school together. We've got to get deeper into that view of grace. So here's the assignment this week. I mentioned earlier, we all, we're all surrounded by people who don't get God, who don't understand who God really is and have settled for some misconstrued, crazy image or idea of God. Start chipping away at that. Who, who do you think God is? How would you just, what's one word you'd use to describe God? Try that one, okay? See what bounces back at you and then kind of go with that. Because maybe you hear something, it's all judgment or all wrath, or he just likes to destroy people, or you know, it's some kind of version of atheism or humanism and some mixed up whatever. And you know what? I I hear you saying that, and I hear you don't like that. You know, I don't like that either. But here's what scripture tells me, and it is all about the grace of God that I've received. He looks at me and loves me and forgives me. Do you know that God? Have you ever heard of that God? Because that's the God I know. Start to dismantle preconceived 
goofy ideas of God and interject how you do know God and how you stand in his grace. I dare you to try it. And here's what I'd love to do. I'd love to hear some stories back. So you're, now you're on the spot. Please don't stop coming to church. Okay, but if you do have a, some kind of discussion, and I know it's by faith. It is by faith. If you don't know that, it is by faith. You step into the unknown. You step into the unknown, and you don't know what that person is going to say to you. Okay, that's good. You better be praying. You better be praying about it. And just go there and take a step. And even if nothing else works or it gets confusing real fast, at least you could say, but this is the God I know. And I'd like you to tell, I'd like to tell you a little bit about him. You want to hear it? And most people that we know are willing to at least give us a shot because I've also experienced that to be true. Because now more than ever, people are wondering and questioning. They need to know the grace of God. And we have the opportunity to open their eyes and see the light come up over the horizon. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would work in a new way, in a powerful way, first as we experience again the school of your grace to be even deeper into this richness and its beauty and its sufficiency. Stir us again and warm our hearts and open our eyes and fill us with gratitude and love and praise. This truly is, I believe, worship, an opportunity to respond in worship because of your grace. So Jesus, warm our hearts again. And then, and then Lord, I pray that you would fill us with a desire and opportunity, as we saw, similar to Jacob, an opportunity to bless and grace somebody else. That even, even in the midst of, of the 400 coming at us, we would see something else, an opportunity to speak of you, to speak with you. So grace, maybe for the first time, could be heard. And Jesus, in those moments, work. Holy Spirit, melt hearts and break down defenses so the gospel can be heard maybe for the first time and that people who are broken and dead without it can find new life. A new day can dawn because of your grace. Work in that way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.